to their seats and we'll begin by opening up with prayer here this morning. Hope our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for another day where your mercy and grace is upon us and we thank you that we can gather together in freedom, that we can learn about you and your world. We can learn your word, Lord, and we pray that as we look at this wisdom literature and that you would help us to have wisdom and that we would see that ultimate wisdom is found in the gospel, the person and work of Christ for eternal life. I also pray for Bob as he preaches out of 1 Corinthians 3 that we would all take heart and, and also look at what we're building upon if we're building according to the firm foundation. And I ask, Lord, that you would do a work through us through the word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see all you hearty Minnesotans that aren't at a lake here today. We're going to be continuing on in Proverbs, and we're going to be, with this section, finishing Proverbs chapter 3. So we'll be getting into Proverbs chapter 4, obviously, the next time then. And after the book of Proverbs, I think I'll be teaching the book of Zechariah. I've been thinking about a book after this one, too. So that'll be a lot of fun. So we will be going through Proverbs, though, today. And today the message is, again, focusing on the rewards of wisdom and how wisdom gives life to those who believe in God's word, meaning not that you and I as believers have an easy life here and now, but the point that I think Solomon is making today is that believers uniquely are those who can put their head on the pillow at night and we can genuinely have peace and a clear conscience. But we're also going to be learning today that the culmination of God's wisdom is found in Christ. If people don't have Christ, they don't have the gospel, they don't have the wisdom of God. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, today there are five sections in these remaining verses in chapter 3 that all flow together. The first one is actually a hymn. So you'll see this hymn from verse 13 to verse 18. Now, in this hymn, it has something called an inclusio. Remember, an inclusio is where you have a bracketed theme that brackets the beginning and the end. And here again, it's blessed. The term here, ashray, will define later. It doesn't have to do with being in a good mood or just happy, but having the status of God's favor. So that's the beginning of the hymn. The end of the hymn ends with the same thing, blessed. So it's very similar to the Mount of Beatitudes that we just read about in Matthew chapter 5 some weeks ago. Now after that, the second section talks about wisdom's role in creation, that God in his wisdom could create all things. In his wisdom and his understanding, he's so powerful that he can create what we see today in the cosmos. Third section, we see that wisdom is attached to security. Again, not that you're guaranteed your best life now as a believer. In fact, you're guaranteed you'll have trials and tribulations in this world. But what you're going to be guaranteed is that you can go to bed at night with a clear conscience knowing that your sins are forgiven. And that as much as life depends upon us, we do live peaceful and secure lives. We're not the warmongers or those who are looking to attack other people. The fourth session here is going to be wisdom in being benevolent. If you and I learn to be gracious and good to others, that's reflective of God's wisdom. Wisdom within us leads us to be gracious and kind to others. And finally, remember, the admonition is probably from Solomon to his sons. It's a warning again about criminal behavior. Don't follow the criminal and their lust to shed innocent blood to get easy money. So those are the five sections. So let's begin today where we see 
wisdom is greater than riches in this hymn. Let's begin in verses 13 through 15. Solomon wrote this. He said, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Dear ones, notice here this term in blue, blessed. The term blessed there, ashray, in Hebrew has to do not so much with just being happy or being in a good mood. I talk about that in our sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are you over and over, I think nine times. Well, blessing isn't just happy. There's a big debate in scholarship today as how to define what the term blessed means. And some scholars will say, well, blessed means to be happy. And good scholars will define that. But ultimately, happiness is misleading. Because we think of happiness as something that's symptomatic. I'm happy because I'm on the way to my cabin. Or I'm happy because my eggs were done just right. And I feel good today. I don't, my foot isn't bad or my back isn't bad or whatever it may be. Well, certainly those things might make us happy. But that's not the idea of being blessed. Being blessed has to do with the status of having God's favor. And because God's favor is upon us, we have his forgiveness and we have a future in his glorious kingdom. And so blessed is about having a status that is not symptomatic. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, let's say you're a Jewish believer in the Holocaust, you can be in a death camp and you're blessed rather than the Nazi who is living it up in, you know, remember, what is it, Eagle's Nest or wherever Hitler had his headquarters, you know? They are not blessed. Are you with me? So being blessed is not symptomatic. If you look around the world today, oftentimes the believers have a rough go of it, while those who are evil, they have the riches, they have the power, the prestige, They are the power brokers of our day, but they're not blessed because they don't have Christ. So that's what this is ultimately about. Being blessed is ultimately about having a a future in the kingdom of God. Yes, Norm. Um, That's an interesting topic. Uh, You know, we when we talk about God blessing us, yes, that's one way. But yet, sometimes we say we we bless god you know so it's like it's two ways and it's sometimes confusing to know how it's used or where people say god bless you and sure it's just i i'm not quite sure i understand how blessing is used in that regard yeah you know it always originates with god you know the yeah. blessings flow from him and the reversal of our cursed status begins with him When we wish somebody, like you say, when they sneeze, God bless you, um, I think that originated when things weren't so good medically. And I think, uh, if I recall, there were some plagues involved, and people would wonder, hey, are they going to make it, you know? Yeah. But I think the idea of blessing is longing. When we say that to someone, we long for God's favor to be upon them, or at least that is what we should mean by that. So how can we bless God? Yeah, I think the idea of blessing God is something that you and I do only as a result of his grace and his power. And so it's something that you and I do to please God in the sense that we are not those who want to curse him. We want to make his name great. It's almost used synonymously with honor. The idea of kavoth in Hebrew, 
the idea of making him glorious, making him honor, or giving him honor, making him weighty before men and women okay. would be the idea. And so we do it through our good. Think of it this way. Israel was to be a blessing to God as, in the sense of light to the Gentile nations, sadly because of their unbelief and their idolatry, they end up being a curse. Okay, does that make sense? So they bring disrepute upon his name, although God glorifies himself, and he does it even through their ineptitude, and he does through us as well. Yes, Paul. Now I'll make this short because I want to hear what you, have to, what you have to say. When Jacob was wrestling the angel, he said, bless me. Yes. In other words, cry uncle. I'm the superior one. When we bless God, we're just saying he is the superior one, and we are not. Yeah, amen. That's right. The blessing goes from the greater to the lesser, and that's why Melchizedek blessed Abraham, right? Uh, remember, Melchizedek, it's, it's the king of righteousness. Melch is king, and Sadek is righteousness. So this king of righteousness ends up blessing Abraham, and that's a point that the writer of Hebrews makes, that the greater blessed the, the lesser. And so that would have been sh- earth-shattering to the Jew, thinking Abraham, the father of the faith, Melchizedek was greater than he. But again, it's this foreshadowing that the Messiah comes not from the lineage of the Levites, but from the order of Melchizedek, without beginning and without end, right? So you're right, God is the greater, he's blessing us, and so any blessing that we give to him, in other words, we act in a way to honor him is really what we mean by that. You know, there are terms we use in, a, in our American vernacular where you have double duty. Um, one would be cool. We can say it's cool outside, temperature, or someone is a cool cat. We're using cool two different ways. But we're getting dual usage out of that term. In some ways, blessing is that way. Sometimes what we really mean by us blessing God is honoring him. That's really what we mean by it. So, yes, the blessings flow from God the greater to us the lesser. Yes, Joy. I, really, I like the way you said that because I think a lot of times we think of blessing as we have received some tangible thing. Yes. And so when we bless God, we, we, that's kind of a weird concept because there's nothing that we can give to him except our love and obedience. Amen. And that's what blesses God. Amen. And I, I also was going to mention, in the, I use this Greek translation, and in the Beatitudes it doesn't say blessing. It says spiritually prosperous. Oh, is, is that what it says? In yes. Your, the, okay. So I always like to think of it as spiritually prosperous rather than oh, that's good. I like getting that. something. Right, know? right, yeah. In the same way with when we bless God. Yep. We, he's delighted when we obey him. Very well said. Very delighted. Very well said. Yeah, so think of it. To make it easy, this is the way I think about it, is when I think of blessing, I think of it's about status, not symptom. So symptomatically, I can wake up, I don't feel well. Maybe if somebody has COVID, things aren't going well financially, whatever it may be. But if you have Christ and the forgiveness of sins, you're blessed. Oh, that's right. You're spiritually prosperous. Very good. Yes, Bob. I want to make sure this mic works. Yes, so, very good. The other thing is um, there's a part of the literature, including the first 13 verses of Ephesians. Yeah, the Barakah. called Barakah. Yeah. And it's ascribing to God... Uh, honor and glory because of his mighty deeds Amen. that he's done. And in the Old Testament, we have that same idea. In, in the New Testament, it's called eulogetos, which would, we get our word eulogy, but it would mean speaking well 
of God for who he is and what he's done and how he has blessed us. And that, I don't know if that's Barakah is the same word, but because I don't know Hebrew, but in that kind of blessing, we're ascribing what God did. Right, amen. And so it would be roughly like the idea of to the glory of God alone. Amen, amen. I think the mic is working, so I better let No, you go very ahead good, and thank you. Yes, very well said, yeah. Yeah, that was a great study, by the way, in that Barakah section in Ephesians. So anybody else on that before I move on? Barakah or Barakah? A B, with a, yeah, B is in Bravo, right? Yeah. Um, I also want you to see here that. I'm going, to, I'm going to pull up my pointer real quick. I'm going to show you something that's roughly synonymous. I think that wisdom here and understanding are roughly synonymous, although there is some nuance. In other words, this may be a form of synonymous parallelism. However, there's a nuance between wisdom and understanding. Wisma, or wisdom is kokma, and wisdom has to do with the idea of applying knowledge at the appropriate time and in a moral way. Whereas the term here, understanding, buna, often has to do with our skills or understanding having knowledge. And so let me try to illustrate the difference. Years ago when I was a flight instructor, I had a young student, and oftentimes the younger guys, they had good um, stick and rudder skills. They could learn quickly how to maneuver the aircraft. And so you might say he had buna. He had some skill. But this one particular student I had, he had a lot of skill but not a lot of wisdom, kokma. And so I had to watch him like a hawk because he would do the dumbest things. It was the air, airmanship and the decision-making that I was concerned with. And he's the only student I ever had that failed a check ride, not because he didn't have the skills, the buna, but because he didn't have the wisdom, kokma. And I think all of you know what that's like in your world where you see someone that his skills or knowledge but despite having the knowledge or the skills that they do in their particular job or vocation, they act like fools in the world. They don't have wisdom. And again, wisdom has to do with taking our knowledge and using it at the appropriate time and in a moral way. Because if we're not using our skills ultimately to bless God, that is to honor him, then we've made ourselves the fool. Because we're living as if this is all there is and there's nothing for eternity. And you're going to see hints of living for eternal life, I believe here, even in Proverbs 3, where that's where wisdom goes. Yes, wisdom can give you long life, but what good is long life if you don't have everlasting life? And so wisdom and understanding go hand in hand. Yes, it's desirable to have skills. How many want to have a pilot that has poor stick and rudder skills but they've got some wisdom. No, you needed both. How about the heart surgeon? Remember Bill Lindsay was this great heart surgeon. He had both. He could heal you with his scalpel and give you a new heart valve, and he had the wisdom to know how to use it and how to apply it. That's what we want. So that's what Solomon wants to deliver to his kids, and that's why he wrote this. And again, it's for all believers for all time. Now, one thing I want to point out in this section, and I'll labor this point again as we go, because I want everyone to see, notice the her. You have a a pronoun here. By the way, the pronoun in Hebrew for she or her is he. I mentioned this before, but he is she, and who is he? And so it does sound like the Abbott and Costello who's on first routine, you know, after a while. But anyway, the point is this is what's called personification. 
So wisdom is being depicted or personified like a human being. In fact, um, we do this often like with a ship. You'll talk about, well, how fast does she go? Well, she'll go 32 knots, you know. Well, we're personifying the ship. Okay, didn't... uh, in Star Trek, didn't they do that with the Enterprise? How fast will she go, Captain? I don't know. You know, Jim, I, you know, anyway, so sorry, I don't know that show even that well. But you know what I'm saying? So we have it in, in our culture, and that's what they're doing here. Solomon is personifying wisdom itself. Now, notice here, when he personifies it, he says the reason, ultimately, that wisdom is greater than riches is because it leads to reward of long life, and I'll show you ultimately everlasting life. Notice it says, For her profit is better than the profit of silver, and her gain better than fine gold. And then notice in verse 15, She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire compares with her. That's how precious having the wisdom of God really is. What I want you to see here is I want you to see this bridge between Proverbs 3... And in progressive revelation, when we get to the New Testament, we find that the greatest expression of God's wisdom is the person and work of Christ. So remember, the person and work of Christ, we can say that is the gospel. So the gospel is the person and work of Christ, and that is the greatest expression of God's wisdom. So here's what I want to put together. If we don't have Christ, ultimately we don't have wisdom. Now, I want you to see some connections where... In fact, notice this term wisdom, again, chokmah in understanding Buna. I want you to see the one who ultimately has an unlimited measure of that. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 11.2. I'm going to show you that it was the Messiah who was to have wisdom and understanding at an unparalleled level. And so therefore, if we have Messiah, we have the very wisdom of God. So again, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 11, verse 2. Isaiah 11.2. Now, remember Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10 itself is an inclusio. Because remember in verse 1, I'm just doing this from memory. Remember, the Messiah is to be the one who comes from Jesse. But in verse 10, he is also the source of Jesse. And remember, who is Jesse? Well, Jesse is David's father. So, in verse 1 of Isaiah 11, the Messiah is the one who comes from David, is a human. He is the shoot of David. But in verse 10, he is the root of David. He's the source. And so right in Isaiah 11, 1 and verse 10, that's an inclusio because you have the human nature of the Messiah, verse 1, the shoot of Jesse. But you have him being the source of Jesse in verse 10. He's the God-man. But notice here in verse 2, What does it say of the Messiah? It says, The Spirit of Yahweh, remember the Lord, all caps, is Yahweh's covenant name. It says, The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. So does everyone see that phrase where it says, The Spirit of wisdom and understanding? Notice on the screen, again, wisdom, kokma, and buna. And the person who had the ultimate measure of that is the Messiah. If you're attached to him by faith, you found the very wisdom of God. Now, turn your Bibles ahead to the New Testament. I'm going to give you a little fast forward and a foreshadowing of what we're going to be looking at when we get to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 42. Remember, this is after that section where the 
religious leaders of Israel are not content with the miracles that Christ provides, and so they demand to see a sign. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. But then he says here in Matthew twelve forty two. Notice what he says about wisdom and who had a lot of it was Solomon. Matthew 12, 42, he says, The queen of the south... By the way, let me stop there. The queen of the south, who is that? That's Queen Sheba. Right? So that's the queen, queen Sheba. You can read about this in 1 Kings 10, if I recall. 1 Kings 10, verses 1 through 13. So how she would go visit Solomon because he had such wisdom. So this is Jesus. It says, The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment... And will condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, notice Jesus says that she, this is Queen Sheba, will rise up with this generation at the judgment to condemn it. What does that mean? That means as she saw great glory in Solomon, remember this generation, as Bob showed us in CIC, is a pejorative linking together all people of unbelief. If you're an unbeliever, you're part of this generation. So here the irony is the Jews are seeing all these signs that show that Jesus is the Messiah, but because they don't believe, they're part of this generation. And they have greater glory. They've seen the Messiah who has greater wisdom. And so if Queen Sheba was culpable, if she didn't come to faith after seeing Solomon's wisdom, how much more... Are those living in Jesus' day culpable because they've seen even greater glory and greater wisdom found in the Messiah himself? That's what Jesus is doing with that. So the point is, we're not reading into Proverbs 3 the idea that ultimate wisdom is found in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Again, we have progressive revelation going from Genesis to Revelation. And as we approach the New Testament, we know that the reason why nothing compares with having the wisdom of God is because that's how we have the very forgiveness of sins. Ultimate wisdom is found in the gospel. Let me read to you. I know you've heard this from Bob not long ago, so I'll just cite it, but you can jot it down if you're a note taker. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. Listen to Paul. He said, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Is it a popular message? No. He says, to the Jews, a stumbling block, literally a scandal alone. It's a scandal. And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, there's the elect, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Where do we find ultimate wisdom? It's in Jesus Christ. I think, God, for all of you here who believe in him, you have the very wisdom of God. And what that's going to lead to ultimately is life, not just here and now, but eternal life. And so that's why we see it's so, so valuable to have this wisdom. Verses 16 through 18, Solomon continues. He says, Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is like she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and blessed are all who hold her fast. Now, I want you to notice here again this idea of long life. Long life is in her right hand, and notice here in her left are what? Riches and honor. Notice again we have personification with the her. 
wisdom is still being personified, and it really will through this entire section. Now, when it says long life is in her right hand, oftentimes the right hand is depicted as the hand of power, but here, I think the issue is just what does she offer this wisdom? Well, on the one hand, it's long life. On the other hand, it's also riches and honor. All right, now, notice here in verse 17, it's also her ways are pleasant and they what lead to paths of peace. All of her paths are peace. Now, the term peace there means comprehensive peace, not just a, well, I've had a peaceful day today or I'm at a peaceful state of mind. I'm not agitated. No, shalom has to do with being at one with God, as it were. In other words, having peace with God and peace with men. Um, If you have forgiveness of sins, you are no longer at enmity with God. You have the forgiveness. And so shalom is not just, again, like being happy, the absent of turmoil in your heart, but it's really synonymous in some sense with being blessed, that you're going to have a peace that is without end. Now, does this mean then that believers are promised nothing but peace in this life? No, we're promised that we'll oftentimes have turmoil, trials and tribulations because we belong to Christ. The idea is that these trials are not brought about by us living godly lives. They're brought about because we live in a world that hates the wisdom of God. So you'll often see passages that will say, as much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. The idea is if we live a life of wisdom where we follow Christ and his commands, as much as it depends on us, we will be living peacefully. We're not going to be the people who stir strife and trouble in our families and our relationships at work. I don't think Vladimir Putin is probably a born-again Christian. Are you with me? The dictators of this world who wage war are not following the wisdom of Christ. Are you with me? Now, that doesn't mean that you might be a soldier. If you're listening today on Memorial Weekend or you're an airman or a Marine, you may be a believer and you're called to restrain evil. That's a godly endeavor. In fact, the soldier is never put down. In the New Testament, remember John the Baptist told soldiers... He didn't say to them, hey, you have to repent and stop being soldiers. He said, be content with your wages and don't extort money. In other words, be good soldiers. So the point is sometimes good men and women have to restrain the evildoers because they are not following the ways of peace. Yes, Brian. As we're sanctified, we try to follow Jesus's beatitudes. Yeah. And uh, I'll testify, I I fail all the time. So even though you may have uh, a peace, I'm one to get agitated pretty easily. Okay. Not in work life or home life, but just things happening around. So I get uh, agitated pretty easy, and uh, I, I pray all the time to the Holy Spirit that, that you know, he can remove that slowly. I prefer yeah. faster, yeah. but, you know, it is what it is. Right. No, that's right. Amen. Amen. No, that's well said. I know we all have our struggles, and, you know, we can cast all of our cares upon him who, who cares for us. And, you know, what's so beautiful is that 
we are those who, when we fall in the mud puddle of sin, we're the ones who get out. We don't like it. I don't like this part of me. I'm going to keep going towards sanctification, towards Christ. The unbeliever, the unregenerate, when they fall in the mud puddle of life, they roll in it. They do like it. In fact, they pitch their umbrella and they break out their drink and they, they stay there. So the fact that you recognize that about yourself, and we all have those things, we all know those things about ourselves that we struggle with, it's a godly sign that you're concerned. You say, hey, I want to follow the things of Christ. I want to do his commands and live his ways. And I, trust me, Brian, the unregenerate are not concerned about those things. Oftentimes, I'll have people ask me, have I committed the unpardonable sin? And I'll have to say, well, if you're concerned about committing the unpardonable sin, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin, by the way, is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ. And so as the Spirit gave evidence to the Jews, and the Jews said, no, that's done by the power of Satan. If you're taking the works that the Spirit does that points to Christ and you're attributing those works to Satan, you're no longer in a condition in which you can be brought to Christ because that's the role of the Spirit. So that's what Jesus was warning about. Ultimately, the unpardonable sin is unbelief. That's really what it is. And the unbelief in the face of great evidence is blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Now, here, I want you to see here this reference. Again, she, remember personification, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and blessed are all who hold her fast. Notice the blessed real quickly. That is the inclusio. Remember the inclusio has a bracketed. It began the song in the previous slide with blessed. Now the hymn ends with blessed. By the way, at the very end of this message, at the end of chapter 3, it talks about the criminal who is shameful or disgraced. And I think that that is the opposite, and I think Solomon does it intentionally at the end of chapter 3 to contrast with the blessed. In other words, if you have the wisdom of God, you're blessed, but if you act like the criminal, you're shameful. It's the opposite of blessed. The curse of God is upon you. But I also want you to see this obvious allusion to the tree of life found in the garden. Remember, what did Adam and Eve lose access to after they had sinned? They lost access to the tree of life. Yes, Paul, we get a, we'll get a microphone there to you. I just need for you to check me on something here, but in Revelation, the 22nd chapter, which is the final chapter um, of, uh, of Revelation, it, and on verse 2, it refers to a tree, <laughs> and then verse 3, there will no longer be any curse to it, and that reminds me of Psalm 1, uh, that, uh, you know, the tree. Amen, Paul, that's exactly, I've got it right in my notes, so thank you, that's exactly, in fact, um, would you mind, I'm sorry, Carly, would you mind reading that? I was going to have us read that text, so very good. So in Genesis 3.24, before you read that, what do we lose access to? The tree of life. What is reestablished in the new Jerusalem? The tree of life. And so what sin took away in our rebellion through Christ, it's reestablished. We have access to life. Yeah, so I'm sorry. Go ahead and read uh, Revelation 22.2. Okay. Um, well, in the middle of this street, okay, on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing... Twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Wow. 
That is beautiful. So notice we have Can access I ask you to a quick the question light. here. Yes. Uh, so isn't it a matter of timing? Because in the uh, first curse of the tree of Edom, uh, it was a matter of him taking on, on his time. Man was going to take the fruit, but on this one, it, 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 does this is it? Tr- would it be fair to say that um, the truths were, were available to anybody at any time? They can eat as much as they want because it's in God's timing, not man's. Is yeah, I think possible? the issue, Paul, is that when they eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, remember they succumb to the temptation to be like God, and so now death enters the picture, separation from God, and so. God institutes the separation from the tree of life. Man will not have everlasting life on their own. They're separated from his blessing. They're separated. They're cursed, right? The opposite of blessing is being cursed, and we all are. We're born in Adam. And so what this is showing, and I think it's not just symbolic, but it's, it's also real. I think it'll really be there, but it's also symbolic. So what this tree of life is symbolizing in the New Jerusalem is that what, that which had been taken because of sin is now restored. So what's very interesting about that tree of life, and even the, notice the river flowing, and you have the different types of trees, the different types of fruit, the 12 kinds. You see the same image flowing from Jerusalem on earth during the millennial kingdom. You'll see that in the latter chapters of the book of Ezekiel. So remember, Jesus stands up. You'll see this in, um, I'm thinking of John 7 all the way through 10. He says, all those who are thirsty come unto me, right? Well, what is he talking about? He's doing that on the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's foreshadowing every day during the Feast of Tabernacles, that seven-day feast, the priests would take a golden flagon filled with water. They'd go down to the pool of Shalom. Then they'd bring it up and they'd pour it out on the altar. And the the symbol was that one day when the Messiah comes, he's going to pour out the Spirit. So on the last day of the feast, Jesus says... By the way, if you come to me, if all of you who are thirsty, I'm the one who's going to do that. And so when he's reigning from the temple in Jerusalem, remember you have waters that flow from his temple, and it actually will make the Dead Sea live. And by the way, that is absolute proof of the millennial kingdom. Now here's why. If the Dead Sea is going to live, we don't have that now during the church age, am I right? The Dead Sea is not alive. But... In the eternal states, when we have the new heavens, the new earth, and new Jerusalem, if you read Revelation 21, 1 through 2, it says, John saw the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. He says, and there was no more sea. So in the eternal states, there's no more sea. Now the dead sea doesn't live. So without the millennial kingdom, when do you have a time period in which the dead sea lives? Are you with me? It's not going to be in the eternal state. So that argues that there has to be this 1,000-year reign of Christ, just as Revelation 20 says. So, uh, yes, Levon. Or Laverne, I'm sorry. You know, I'm so sorry. I get Levon and Laverne. I'll get, I'm going to have to get you both name tags. Yeah, there's Levon. Levon, you want to come over here with me? But no. <laughs> um, oh, on the last day of the feast, the priest would go down to the water, but he'd come back up empty on purpose and then pour out the pitcher. Oh, beautiful. Perfect timing then for the Messiah to do what he did. That's beautiful. Thank you, Laverne. Where did you read that? <laughs> I was going to ask you, was it Alfred Edersheim's temple? But he talks about, if anyone's interested in a lot of these feasts and how they're actually, and it's very biblical, you just look at the passages he cites, Alfred Edersheim wrote a book called The Temple. 
and he'll talk about how these different feasts actually occurred and how the messianic fulfillment shows just how prophetic they really were. So anyway, Alfred Edersheim, I think it's called The Temple. He has multiple works, but the one I remember reading was The Temple. So Oh, so on the last day of the feast... Is there a scripture? Um, no, this would be probably uh, extra-biblical okay. material that would just explain how these feasts were done in antiquity. And again, Alfred Edersheim is a very good source for that. But she's just describing that on that seven-day feast, on the Feast of Tabernacles, they would bring the golden flagon with this water to the temple. On the last day, she said that they'd come up empty. They'd go, but they'd come up with nothing there. And... Part of the symbolism there perhaps is why Christ stands up on that day and says, hey, by the way, if you're thirsty, I've got the water ultimately is what he's saying, right? The water comes from me, the living water. And so again, that's going to be fulfilled when he returns in the millennial kingdom. He's going to bring life and obviously into the eternal states as Paul just read in Revelation 22:2 in the New Jerusalem. So yes, here's the point. All the way back in Proverbs, think about Solomon is writing this around what time frame? 900 B.C. And he's talking about wisdom leads to life. And I don't think he's being opaque about it. The tree of life is that which gives everlasting life. So he's talking about that kind of wisdom leading to everlasting life. And again, that's ultimately found in the gospel. Now, let's continue on here where we see in verses 19 through 20, God's wisdom is inherent in creation itself. Notice he says... The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, notice wisdom and understanding put together again. He established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps were broken up and the skies drip with dew. Now, I want you to see here that this passage is anticipating something that we're going to come to in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. And I want to read that together to show you, kind of put this together how the Lord talks about wisdom being there at the beginning of his creation. And then we're going to make some applications from this. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. I want to read that with you and show you how this anticipates this future passage. Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. Now, as you turn there, Proverbs 8, 22 through 31, some have taken from this passage the idea that wisdom must be the Messiah... Because, in fact, he's the one who did the creation itself. I don't think that that's probably Solomon's point, although, you know, certainly the Messiah did create. But the idea would be more that God in his wisdom and his understanding, which would be the second person, the Trinity, the Lord, that he was able to create all things. And what you're going to see is an interesting application to this is that those who reject God are standing in opposition to the very nature of his creation. And I'll talk about some examples of that. So let's read, though, Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. It says, The Lord possessed me, again, this is personification of wisdom, possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were, were no depths, I was brought forth when there was no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the first dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, 
When the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. What's the main point of this and what we read in Proverbs 8.22? I think, I'm sorry, 22 through 31. It's those who refuse God's wisdom run against the very nature of the world. That's Solomon's point. In other words, those who won't follow God's wisdom, they will bring trouble and they will live in trouble. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, Bob, do you want to tell that story of you came across a church that was Lutheran that rejected the wisdom of God in that in creation we're going to have thorns and thistles and there's part of the creation is cursed, right? well, the whole creation is cursed, and that it's only through the sweat of our brow and the removal of the thorns and thistles that we may farm and live and have food, etc. But the pagans are destroying that idea by saying, no, everything in nature is good. And you saw an interesting example of a church that was living more pagan than some pagans you knew. Why don't you explain that story? Yeah, that was not far from where we lived. There was a um, church, I believe it was Lutheran, but whatever it was, I think that was it. They weren't taking care of their yard or the front of the grass out there. So they put a sign up and it said, Prairie Restoration Project. And then they quit mowing the lawn. <laughs> and eventually, it was full of um, volunteer trees, which are usually, you know, elms that put all kinds of seeds or cottonwood or things you don't want. And it just got worse and worse. Yeah, her buckthorn, I don't know that that was there. And in the end, you know, they, they sold it to some other group that cleaned it up and painted it and whatever. Yeah. But the fact is that Denying the reality of the fall right. is ultimately a lack of wisdom. And to think that not caring for whatever it is, your garden, that you're growing food to eat, or anything like that will result in a good outcome is not true. Right. We don't live in paradise, and paradise is not evolving through processes of history. Amen. And what is so unwise about our current culture around us is the idea that nature will take care of us. Amen. And the fact is, that's how you die. Yes. Because nature is fallen. Yes. And human beings, though fallen, are created in the image of God. Right. And what I'm concerned about is that my grandparents and the, my father and just the world they grew up in, yeah. they knew for a fact that if they didn't really work hard and do everything they could, they wouldn't survive. Yeah. Because they'd had drought, they'd had the Great Depression, they had various failures and so on. And now there's the idea that we become one with nature, then we'll be getting closer to God, right. and nature is going to take care of us. That's right. And one of the things that came up, and maybe some others have heard this, before the fall, 
in chapter two, Adam is to till and keep the garden. Yes. So there was work before the fall. Right. Now, I just read a reading of somebody that I consider a false teacher saying the serpent was supposed to have been kept out of the garden by Adam, but he failed. Oh, that's right. And I thought, where did that come from? Yeah. And it was one of these spiritual warfare uh, teachers. And I asked Eric about it. I yeah, hadn't heard it this. Anybody else heard that Adam failed because he didn't keep the serpent out of the garden? You'd heard that? Yes. But is there anything in the text that would indicate that's how we're supposed to understand no, it? No. The, here's the one thing you take away from everything uh, Eric's teaching or anyone that's teaching this biblical. We should judge all of us if we're not. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Yeah. And as Eric taught the last couple of weeks, the author determines the meaning, not the reader. Amen. So we don't give um, credence to a reading that is contrived by the mind of man. Somebody may have a really good imagination, but that doesn't make it inspired by the Spirit. Right. So Amen. nature will not take, take care, care of, of us. Right. Amen. And um, It's a lack of wisdom, isn't it? Yeah. The first time I was in Chicago, I went to take our son to go see a Cubs game because he was a Cubs fan. Yeah. I saw something I'd never seen here. There was an old cemetery that it, full of headstones un, under the brush that was abandoned. Mm. And it was overgrown by everything that happened to grow. Mm. And I thought, I don't think I've seen that. Uh, I don't know exactly where we saw that in Chicago. But if you see nicely tended, like Fort Snelling, yeah. you know a human being is doing that. That's right. If you abandon it and let nature take care of it, it'll be overgrown. That's right. And nature is fallen. That's right. Well said. The reason why you and I are paying $4.25 a gallon is because of a lack of wisdom. It's a pagan worldview. What's ultimately behind the environmental movement is a deep ecology movement in which human beings made in the image of God. Remember, God gave us the right to use the natural resources of the earth. We are to be fruitful. We are to multiply. But the deep ecology movement says, no, we have to return back to nature, and humankind is a problem. And so the idea, yes, Gaia, Gaia worship, right, that the Mother Earth is a spirit and that we're somehow polluting her. Think about um, very early on in this current administration, there was a group of officials, Blinken, the Secretary of State, got together with China. And so they were sitting, I think it was in Alaska where they were meeting. If you remember, this is the very first few weeks. Well, the Chinese were really ripping apart our own officials, and they had a term in Chinese for it. For our own officials, they called them batso. And batso is a Chinese term that means, remember, now the Chinese are Marxists. So here they're criticizing fellow Marxists, but the term batso means a Marxist who's so foolish they won't use their own natural resources. Wow. <laughs> See, not only are we governed by Marxists, but with the dumbest kind. Are you with me? So that's why we're spending $4.25 a gallon. Think of it this way. Let me ask this question. What is the temperature going to be next Christmas Eve? Does anybody know? Well, no. Do you know why? Because we can't know. We do not have the ability to know in one city the temperature in one place one year in advance. 
but yet we're led to believe that there are experts who know the temperature of the globe for the next 20 years. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you, right? I'm telling you, I've been a, an airline pilot for many years, and I, we would use terminal air forecasts that are called um, TAFs, METARs, lift K indexes. We lift all sorts of meteorological forecasts. And I'm telling you, oftentimes, even within a few days, they need to be amended, and they're in error. And the fact that someone claims to know the global temperatures in the next 10 to 15 years, it's a ruse. They can't know that. Bob one time wrote an article saying that the scientists today need to learn from theologians who say from Deuteronomy 29, 29, the things that the Lord has revealed belong to us and our children forever, but the things that he has not revealed belong to the Lord alone. And we as theologians have to have the humility to say, I can't know that. If you ask me how many angels there were created, I don't know. It wasn't revealed. But where is the humility of today's scientists saying, I can't know the global temperatures for the next 20 years? No, it's a ruse. The global warming movement's like the proverbial watermelon. Oh, yes, it's green on the outside, but it's communist red on the end. And it shows the lack of wisdom amongst these pagans. You and I are living in an age that's rejected the very wisdom of God. And daily as we look at the pump, we can use it to say, hey, look at what the most foolish are doing. They won't even use their own resources to help their own people, their bozo, as the Chinese said. Yes, Brian. I don't believe that they think they know that the temperature is going to rise. I think it's all a big lie simply because along with the global warming comes the rising seas, and yet they never cease from buying uh, ocean property. Great so, point. Well said, yes. Well said. Yes, I'm sorry, Rich. Bronco Obama, whoops. Barack Obama, when he was president, he said, we need to pay more for energy. Yes. In view of what you're saying, we need to pay more for energy, according to him, is because, could you say that one more because time? Because you and I are considered pollutants tainting Mother Earth. Uh, just as Joyce said, it really comes to this Gaia spirit that so many believe in, that mankind is the problem. By the way, the Nazi philosopher who taught the same thing was Arthur Schopenhauer. Arthur Schopenhauer said the problem with humanity is that these Jews believe, and they seriously believe the first nine chapters of Genesis, that God made mankind in his image and that we have dominion over the creation. And so the church during the Nazi period was infected by new orthodoxy and they failed miserably. They gave up on Genesis 1 through 9. But the people of the book who wouldn't give up on it were the Jews, and therefore they had to die. The reason they died was because of environmentalism. Hitler wanted to, to create Liebenschrom, living space for the German people, and he thought that everything had to be connected to nature. And so the people who stood in the way were the Jews who believed that no mankind is made in his image, and he's given us creation, all of creation, for our good. And so it was the environmental movement that fundamentally drove Adolf Hitler. Think about this. Now Nazism is considered a right-wing phenomenon. Let me ask you, who teaches radical environmentalism, the right or the left? The left. Let me ask you, um, Darwinian evolution was part of Nazism. Who teaches Darwinian evolution, the right-wing conservative evangelical scholar or the left-wing gay and lesbian studies professor at college? What's the latter? So Nazism isn't a right-wing phenomenon. It comes from left-wing doctrine. 
And so that's what we see today. It's the lack of wisdom. And the reason why people will pay more and more and more and they'll still vote for it is because they don't have a biblical worldview. That no, the creation is under our dominion, not to abuse, but to use for the sake of our good. Now, one thing I want to point out here, it's very interesting, is notice here in creation, it talks about how the deeps were broken up. That's a reference back to Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. The deeps being broken up is a reference back to the judgment of the flood. That was destructive. But notice in the same line, so you really have what's called antithetical parallelism. I, I think it should maybe render a but here, but it's an and. And the skies drip with dew. I would render it if I had my Eric Dalma version. The deeps were broken up, but the skies drip with dew. Because there's a contrast. The skies dripping with dew is something that's gracious. Dew, for example, was used, remember, in Exodus 16 with the manna. If you live in the ancient Near East in the arid conditions... Oftentimes, the dew was the only way you could get water on your plants. Why? Because you didn't have rain for a long time. So remember, in what we have with dew is you have, at night, you have clear skies. As the sky is clear, you have the cold air comes as the cold air. You have the, the terrestrial radiation leaves the ground. It goes up. There's no cloud cover to cover it. So you lose, lose all of your heat. And as you lose your heat on the clear night... What do you have? The temperature reaches the dew point. The water condenses. It's like God wringing out the sky. And you get water on your ground. In these ancient Near East arid lands, that's sometimes all the water they had, and so that was life-giving. So here's the point. The point that Solomon is making, don't miss it, is that in creation, you have that which is both destructive and that which is helpful. And so you and I, people made in the image of God, have to be those who are able to use the creation for our good and for the betterment of mankind. Um, I've heard a lot of talk about people say, well, this is natural. Uh, you have to use this because it's natural. And I don't really like that because cyanide is natural. <laughs> are you with me? Now, I'm not saying there aren't better choices than others. That's my point, is that cyanide is natural, and so is milk. And if they're both natural, then it's incumbent upon me as a person who is rational, made in the image of God, to discern which is better for me. So just because something is natural does not necessarily mean it is good because, in a sense, all things come from God. So that's something we want to be careful of. Just saying something is natural is a pagan worldview. That's what we have to realize. All right, now, turn to your Bibles, if you will. Just I want to show you this passage, Exodus 16, verses 13 through 14. I'm sorry, did, did I miss a hand? Oh, okay, I thought I heard somebody say something. Um, Exodus 16, verses 13 through 14. I just want you to see the connection with the dew and how it was often considered life-giving with the manna. In fact, in some sense, I think the dew kept the manna down. By the way, as you're turning to Exodus 16, 13 through 14, one of the things that I learned in meteorology was even in condensation, you have good and you have bad because um, anybody ever heard the latent heat of condensation? The reason why you have those big buildups of thunderstorms is so let's say you have a low-pressure system. Air is being forced up. As it goes up, it cools. As it cools, it condenses. As it condenses, it heats again because the condensing process heats. And as it heats, it rises up again. It cools, and then it condenses, and it heats. And so on very unstable days with a lot of lifting, that's why you get these huge building cumulus clouds. You're seeing the latent heat of condensation in action. 
So within condensation itself, you have both the good and the bad. Yes, you get the water, but you also can get a destructive thunderstorm. So think about that. Exodus 16, verses 13 through 14. Notice the manna with the dew. It says, oh, you know what? I didn't put the passage down. (laughs) I thought I wrote it down, but I didn't. I don't have that down. Does somebody have that and read it? Oh, thank you, Brian. Quick draw McGraw there. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. Wow, well said. So jot this down, don't turn to it, but remember in Isaiah 26, 19, I believe it's a reference to the resurrection. Your corpses shall live, it says. They'll come from the... The departed spirits will come out of the earth. And then there's a reference to dew. Why? Because dew was considered life-giving. Okay? It was considered a life-giving phenomenon from the Lord. So again, when this passage, you see that creation contains both the dangerous and that which is helpful. And again, we have to have the wisdom to run our creation for our good because mankind has dominion over the earth. Okay. Now, we see wisdom leads to security. And what we're going to see, I, I don't have time to enter into this. We'll, we'll maybe shut it down here. But you're going to see that ultimate wisdom that comes from God in the gospel leads to not just a better life so that you and I are going to have everything go well for us, but the idea is that despite our circumstances, we can lay our head on the pillow because at night we have a clear conscience before God. Why do we have a clear conscience through the gospel? Because our sins are forgiven. And so, because we've been spared the wrath of God and you know you have everlasting life, you can have a lot of bad stuff happen to you and say, well, I'm still going to sleep good tonight because I'm blessed. I have the Lord's favor. That's what the wisdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately leads to. And that's what Bob is going to be teaching us here today in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that we have to be those who build on the foundation of the gospel. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for wisdom that comes from your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us out of this world by your grace and mercy. You've given us faith. You've given us forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, and the glorious kingdom to come. And I do pray, Lord, that we would live accordingly, that we would be those who are able to lay our heads down at night with a clear conscience. I do pray, Heavenly Father, for Bob as he preaches and teaches to us today that we would hear and understand, that we'd be hearers of the word, but not just hearers, but also doers, so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you, that we'd give you honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.